Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of Thaisy Books. News and views about Thaisy literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Bart. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, we have Nandini Bhattacharya in the Five Thaisy Faves segment. Her debut novel, Love's Garden, is a work of historical fiction set in British India. So she'll be sharing her five favorite historical novels with us. We also have Anuja Gimire, who has a poetry chapbook out this year titled Kathmandu. She'll be boosting her three favorite poems in the Desi Boost segment. This is the last episode of 2020, and it's been an interesting first year for Desi Books. So I'd like to share some very brief details with you listeners about how we've done together. Since starting in April, there have been 21 episodes, which is about a thousand minutes of total airtime and averaging about 100 listens per episode. 31 guest writers have joined us, and over 100 notable 2020 books have been featured. And that's not including all the other books that we've featured or talked about. And while Desi includes eight specific countries, as I've mentioned before, the writers and books covered have spanned more than 15 countries. And all of you listeners are situated in more than 10 different countries. There have been two collaborative projects with Libro FM and the Global Literature in Libraries Initiative. And we've had, quite amazingly, eight media features about the podcast across the US, the UK, and India. All of this has happened with zero dollars funding and zero dollars profits. In 2021, I'm hoping we can do a monthly virtual book club focusing on South Asian books in translation. And where possible, we'll bring the translator along for a brief discussion at the end. I'm also hoping to have guest hosts for segments that are not my area of expertise, so we can cover a few more genres and countries. In the last episode, I'd shared a bit about a collaboration project between the Global Literature and Libraries Initiative and Desi Books. Throughout the month of December, I have been sharing brief interviews with South Asian literary translators about one of their favorite translated works. I'll include the links again in the episode transcript on the website. If you're connected on Twitter or Instagram, details are being shared there daily as well. In the introductory post on December 1st, I talked about the need 
to spotlight South Asian literature in translation. Please feel free to share or recommend your own favourites as well and tag the Desi Books social media accounts. As I've said before, these books aren't simply stories. They're rich, historical, cultural and literary artefacts. And if we're open to it, each one of them can reveal to us new wisdom about our world and indeed our own selves. Now please sit back and enjoy the usual episode segments. In Notable New Books for December. You can find all the titles mentioned in this new book segment at bookshop.org, which benefits local independent booksellers directly. Go to bookshop.org slash lists slash daisy dash books dash 2020. This is a US-based site, so my apologies to non-US listeners, but you can still see the list of all the books that have come out in 2020 and been mentioned on the podcast. I know I don't always catch all new books by writers of South Asian origin, so if you've got a new book coming out, please tag the They See Books account on Twitter or Instagram to let me know. You can also send an email to hello they see books, that's one word, at gmail.com. The social media links will also be in the transcript and they're always on the website. As always, I'm going to reference just a couple of books that I've missed in earlier episodes. First up, we have A Dominant Character, The Radical Science and Restless Politics of J.B.S. Haldane. This is by Samanth Subramanian. It came out in July this year. It's a biography that explores the science, politics, and life accomplishments of Haldane, a celebrated polymath who made significant contributions during both the Great Wars. The Book of Indian Essays, 200 Years of English Prose, edited by Arvind Krishnamerotra, came out in November. This collection starts with De Rosio in the 1820s and ends with writers admired for their prose in the 21st century. The essays span a range of literary essay genres and the geographic locations are equally diverse, from Victorian Calcutta, modern America, village or rural Egypt, elevated Oxford, feudal Kerala, cosmopolitan Mumbai, bureaucratic Delhi, Buddhist Benares, civil lines Allahabad, and small-town India. Next, we have um, Crystal Clear, Reflections on Extraordinary Talismans for Everyday Life, by Jaya Saxena. This is out at the end of this month. 
And in this collection, Saxena reflects on and challenges the ideas associated with 11 popular stones, exploring how we assign meaning and power to crystals to give meaning and power to our lives. The Impeccable Integrity of Ruby R by Moni Mawson is out now. Ruby is a young student who joins a politician's campaign as their social media manager. If you've read Mawson before, you know what you're going to get here. Sharp wit, political satire, insightful and entertaining takes on social inequalities and more. And finally, Sabah Karim's debut novel, Skyfall, is out now. Full disclosure, I read an advanced copy and provided a blurb, so I'll just read that out. Sabah Karim's debut complicates the usual tropes one might expect in a South Asian novel. Rania, the protagonist, is the kind of troublemaker who dreams big and soars high. From Lahore slums to New York City high-rises, Rania puts everything on the line to fight against prejudices related to gender, religion, caste, class and country. A spirited, take-charge heroine for our challenging, complex times. In the five Desi Fave segment, we've got Nandini Bhattacharya. She was born and raised in India and has called the United States her second continent for the last 30 years. Her short stories have been published, or will be, in various anthologies, the Bombay Review, the Bangalore Review, and more. She has attended the Breadloaf Writers' Workshop and residencies at the Vermont Studio Center, Vona, Centrum Writers' Residency, and the Ragdale Artists' Residency, among others. She was the first runner-up for the Los Angeles Review Flash Fiction Contest in 2017-2018, a finalist for the Fourth River Folio Contest for Prose uh, in 2018, uh, long-listed for the Disquiet International Literary Prize in 2019 and 2020, a finalist for the Reynolds Prize International Women's Literary Award in 2019, and a finalist for the Saturday Evening Post Great American Stories Contest 2021. Nandini lives outside Houston and um, serves a marmalade cat, apparently. Here's a bit about her book, Love's Garden. Starting in 1898 in British India, the novel is about a young widow who marries a stranger to save herself from dishonor and gain some security and protection. Her second family ends up paying for her Faustian bargain. Spanning two world wars and the Indian independence movement, the story covers many themes, from politics to love to gender oppression to mother-daughter relationships and more. Nandini shares with us 
five historical novels that she sees as the literary forebears to her own book. Please enjoy. The titles and links will be included in the transcript too. Hello and welcome to an exploration of historical fiction set in India and written by Indian authors. I'd like to thank Jenny Butt profusely for having me in her podcast, Desi Reads. It's an honor. My name is Nandini Bhattacharya, and I've just published my novel, Love's Garden, an interfamily generational saga spanning both world wars and the turbulent backdrop of the Indian independence movement and the partition of India. Love's Garden has been hailed as a timeless story of redemption on BuzzFeed, and the writing has been praised as vine-like, twisting, curling, and overlapping itself, lush and organic, as it moves toward a climactic head during the civil unrest of the late 1940s, to bring the novel to an introspective, pastoral close by forward reviews. I believe Love's Garden is a successor to the five novels I will speak about today in terms of themes, models of craft, and ideas about history with both capital and small H's. I will discuss the novels in alphabetical order by the author's last names. They are otherwise equally brilliant and polished works of timeless historical literary fiction. There is a style of historical literary fiction that most moves the minds and hearts of readers worldwide, and that is the mythologizing style. A virtuoso and experimenter in this style is Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni, whose fabulous novel, The Palace of Illusions, invokes in its title the Hindu concept of Maya, as depicted in the great Indian epic, the Mahabharata, and then upends and examines it from the perspective of one of the most fascinating women in myth, Draupadi or Panchali, the accidental common wife of five great heroic brothers. Starting with Draupadi's childhood, the novel's feminist narrative voice accompanies the reader through the inner life of a woman who dares to stand up to the patriarchy of her time at every step without losing her moral and spiritual finesse and integrity. No less heroic than her warrior husbands, Draupadi endures the loss of kin and family in the great war of the epic, the Battle of Kurukshetra. What is most delightful about the Palace of Illusions is the ringing, lyrical lilt of the narration. Devakaruni has always steered clear of dense, pretentious prose, instead to instruct and delight readers looking for other ways to understand the ancient world without befuddling them with purple prose. Last but not least, Devakaruni has certainly taught me, as my sometime teacher and as a writer, the importance of being unapologetically feminist as a writer, as I hope is reflected in my 
three generations of women in love's garden. Translation is often a neglected member of the literary pantheon and I would do ill to neglect to mention Those Days by Sunil Gangapadhyay, an exquisite English translation of Gangapadhyay's acclaimed Bengali novel She Shomai, published by Penguin India in 2000. It's really hard to do justice to the wonder of Gangapadhyay's drawing of 19th century Calcutta and Bengali society in its turbulent transition from tradition to modernity, expressed in the spirit of the famed Bengal Renaissance, which was a precursor to globalization today. The novel is nothing less than a spotlight on global modernity and its spread in the colonized world. Winner of India's highest literary honor, the Sahitya Academy Award. Those Days is an award-winning novel capable both of vast panoramas and lovingly reconstructed detail to provide a memorable picture of 19th century Bengal. The Bengal Renaissance and the 1857 Indian mutiny against the British form the backdrop to the story of the tycoon Singha and Mukherjee families members of the elite Babu society of Calcutta and of their complex intimacies and tragedies. The novel chronicles how Bengali feudal aristocracy slowly became aware of its obligations to the nation and rose to the task. The streets of Calcutta become reanimated for readers as antipodal historical personae walk them again. Gangopadhyay's writing is a perfect demonstration of how the best historical literary fiction at all times and everywhere evokes a sense of time and place, depicts historical events through the eyes of participants, and creates multifaceted characters who are experiencing their own growth, development, and plot. The imagination of any Indian writer of historical fiction and of any writer at all will be enriched, as mine was in writing Love's Garden, by the sensuous yet Tolstoyan prose of Sunil Gangopadhyay, a master of the particular and the fleeting, as well as the universal and the timeless. Next I come to Amitav Ghosh's magisterial novel, The Glass Palace first published in 2008 by Penguin India. It has been a model for Love's Garden in many ways. For instance, like Love's Garden, it follows the mingled fates of three families and a world at war, focusing on Burma, India and Malaya from 1885 through the mid-1990s. Another connection between the Glass Palace and Love's Garden is that Asia might be considered one of the characters in both novels. The Glass Palace is particularly replete in scene drawing and storytelling with the sights, sounds and accents of the region's syncretic diverse cultures. It begins with the British takeover of the Kingdom of Burma as the king and queen of the Kunbang dynasty in Mandalay 
or exiled to a remote compound in India. It then takes us through the Second World War to modern times, focusing mainly on early 20th century India. It explores a broad range of issues ranging from the changing economic landscape of Burma and India to pondering what it really means and costs to become a nation. Ghosh's work has long been my inspiration and model for achieving the artistic goals of evoking a sense of time and place, depicting historical events through the eyes of participants and creating multifaceted characters with rich and complex inner lives. Ghosh achieves these goals most dramatically when he tells of swift and heartbreaking reversals and annihilations of ordinary human lives and dreams that reinforce the saying that history may be a nightmare from which we are trying to awaken. He is peerless in relating traumatic events as the historic truth that poetic truth must try to make sense of. Published in 2013 by Gallery Books, Sujatha Masi's The Sleeping Dictionary is an exquisite and important novel and a stunning portrait of late Raj India, a sweeping saga and a love story set against a background of huge political and cultural upheaval. Nearly phantasmagoric and often feverish in its exploration of the seedy underbelly of the Raj and its sexual politics. The Sleeping Dictionary is the story of Pom, a young Bengali girl who survives a massive tidal wave and the loss of her whole world, passes through a decadent and vicious prostitution ring patronized by British men stationed in India then recovers and awakens into a world of language and imagery, as well as anti-colonial struggles against the British. What is scintillating in this novel is Massey's world-building around the theme of Palm, aka Sarah, aka Kamala's skills in secrecy, languages and reading the unspoken gestures of those around her to echo the secret societies and strategies of India's nationalists. Written in a starkly elegant realist style, the novel explores and deplores, as Love's Garden does, the treatment of women in colonial India by both British and Indian men. Last but not least, Salman Rushdie's novel Midnight's Children, published in 1981 by Vintage, probably needs no introduction for readers of Indian writing in English of any kind. It remains, however, one of my absolute favourites in the genre and a timeless classic. It is the story of Salim Sinai, one of the 1001 children born at the midnight hour of India's independence from Britain, each child possessing an extraordinary talent and an extraordinary tragic flaw. Midnight's Children is also one of the first books by an Indian author that fits in the genre of magical realism, a global style of voicing experiences of oppression and marginalization, first popularized by Latin America's literary colossus 
Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Like other works of magical realism, Rushdie's novel remains faithful to the contours of official history, but fills them with fantastic figures, strange collages, odd pairings, and a great deal of retelling of standard mythologies of the nation, colonialism, and decolonization. Poignantly yet playfully capturing the trauma of the British Empire's quintessential policy of divide and rule and its consequences for the so-called survivors, the new citizens of India and Pakistan. Rashi sets a high bar but also the stage for many future writers to experiment with this subgenre of historical literary fiction and Love's Garden has suddenly certainly been watered by its plentiful stream of possibilities of clear absurdity within seeming reality. Once more, thank you for joining me in this discussion of five extraordinary works of historical fiction by Indian writers. I hope you will make the time to read many of them. In today's They See Boost segment, we have Anuja Gimere. Nepal-born Anuja Gimere writes poetry, flash fiction, and creative nonfiction. She is the author of the poetry chapbook Kathmandu, which was out this year from Unsolicited Press, and two poetry books in Nepali as well. She's a Best of the Net and Pushcart nominee, by day, she works as a senior publisher in an online learning company. She reads poetry for Up the Staircase Quarterly and enjoys teaching poetry to children in summer camps. Her work has found home in Glass, a journal of poetry, Orbis, London, Ecotheo Review, U City Review and Crack the Spine, among others. She lives near Dallas, Texas, with her husband and two children. Here's a bit about her chapbook, Kathmandu. The 21 poems in this collection are about the journey from political violence in her first home to her new home. Kathmandu speaks of being a neighbor while still feeling out of place, speaking a foreign tongue while finding it to be a lifeline and all the while readjusting one's definition of home. Exploring love, family, nature, environment, and more, Gimere minds the complexity of never leaving home while moving to keep things whole. And now here she is with her three favorite poems. While in graduate school, after I presented a sonnet on Radha and Krishna, my professor had laughed and asked me why I bothered to write poems that nobody would bother with, poems with cultural references that are not Western-centric. Even before then, I have often wondered why I write in English. 
a tongue that isn't my own, in a language I have loved since I first held a pencil to learn the alphabets. As I write in the poem, a young woman says, I want to speak English, like you, in my chapbook, Kathmandu. Then I come across works of literature that speak to me, for me, about a world that I know so well. I read it in a world that is still new, strange, and sometimes cold and hostile. Three years ago, I read a poem that felt like a protective embrace from the poet to not only my foreign wounds, but an entire world of people like me. From Sikhs patted down at the airport to aunties whose saris dissolve in the wind. The pattas turn into the ocean and Bindi is a new moon. I too am in the poem. The poet is Fatima Asghar, a Pakistani Kashmiri American poet. Her poem, If They Come For Us, from the book with the same title, was published by One World Random House in 2018. In my poem, when Rajiv was blown up, I hide shrapnel of fairy tales in the pleats of my mother's sari. When my mother tucks me in bed after an assassination in my neighboring nation of India, I wake up in a poem many years later in Texas. If I close my eyes again, Asgar's poetic promise can mother me a little while longer. Amy Nazukumatatil, the American poet with the Filipina mother, and Malayali Indian father writes about worlds of wonder and beauty, hurt and hope, flowers and thorns, fish and bones. I see my American children in her poems, like in On Listening to Your Teacher Take Attendance from Oceanic 2018 from Copper Canyon Press, the sharp pencils and the tiny blade of the sharpener in Amy's poem dig deep into my own world. In Kathmandu, I have written poems for my children who attend elementary school in a country that doesn't seem to protect them from harm. My youngest started kindergarten on total solar eclipse. As I left her unsmiling face with missing teeth in the cold building, I found her and her sister again and again in my poems and the weapons of pencil sharpeners and empathy in Amy and her verses. Poetry has given meaning and beauty to not only my joy and grief, but also shared joy and grief of a much bigger world. Nepali Indian poet Rohan Chetri says, We grew heavier, not with grief, but numbers. In his poem, National Grief, from his chapbook, Jurassic Desire, from Per Diem Press, 2018. When I write about the Pulse nightclub shooting in my poem, Orlando, I'm in despair. The Venn diagram of shared and personal grief blurs versus bleed in the dark. Chetri writes about smuggled toys in Aleppo and the mad sultan's ghost weeping near the old mausoleum in Delhi. And I also claim the tragedies to claim the greater universe. Bombs explode in my chapbook too, and I chic shelter in one poem after another, mine and the giants before me. I find in the heroes who look like me the courage to claim my voice. I write my own history about my lived experience so I can tell it just right.
as Toni Morrison said in her 1993 lecture for the Nobel Prize in Literature, we die. That may be the meaning of life, but we do language. That may be the measure of our lives. You've been listening to episode 21 of Desi Books. News and views about Desi literature from the world over. Episode 22 will be up in the new year. Follow on Twitter at Desi Books or Instagram at Desi.Books and tag the accounts if you have requests or suggestions. Email at hellodaisybooks at gmail.com. The transcript will be up in a few days on the website daisybooks.co. Stay healthy, keep reading, and write well.